I, no, I it isn't truth. Truth isn't truth. Truth isn't uh, truth. Mr. Mayor, do you realize what? No, I, no, I, no. This no, is going to become wait, a bad don't, don't, meme. Do, don't, do, don't do this to me. <laughs> Too late, Rudy. You did it to yourself. Never is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on Route 66 in on uh, KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN. Got some good news for New Hampshire today. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe five days a week on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth every damn day of the week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, An all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. And my thanks to Angie Coiro of InDeep Radio for filling in for Desi and me on Friday's broadcast. If you missed her interesting interview, by the way, with Gaius Publius, our friend, who is now finally out as Thomas Newberger. Uh, He has a recent op-ed in the San Francisco Guardian on um, these... uh, the at times uncomfortable relationship, especially right now, between progressive Democrats and unions. Uh, Angie, uh, you can tune into that or uh, the uh, fascinating conversation she had with a bunch of folks in the performing arts on challenges that the arts now face in the era of Trump. You can, as with all of our broadcasts going back for years and years, download uh, last Friday's show for free from bradblog.com. So uh, thank you again, Angie. Also, our flagship station here in Los Angeles, KPFK, where I am now sitting, has been on Fun Drive for a few weeks. So we are glad to be back live with you today as we have been uh, pushing folks uh, to support their local newspapers of late in response to Trump's attacks on the free press and To support whichever progressive media outlet, whether it's a show or a radio station or a streaming website, such as the one you may be listening to us on right now, uh, please support them. So just a quick thanks to those of you who have supported KPFK, People Powered Radio, over the past few weeks here in Los Angeles. 
supporting the work that we do and all of the programming that emanates from this station and goes out around the country and the world. So thank you for uh, for your support. We all need you now more than ever. All right. Perhaps we will get into some of the uh, latest Trump. <sighs> yeah, I know. Hi, Desi Doyen. You're looking at me like, uh, yeah, yeah it's, Monday. Yeah, it's <laughs> Monday. Uh, we are uh, looking at uh, Trump, Giuliani, Robert Mueller, Russia, Michael Cohen, all of that madness. Uh, maybe we'll get to some of that as time allows. If you want me to, I'm going to try to open up the phone lines on a bunch of stuff that I hope to cover today. So whatever's on your mind, it's our first chance following the fun drive to hear from you. Uh, so if time allows, 818-985-5735 is our phone number today. That's 818-985-KPFK. We are now less than nine. No, I'm sorry, less than 80 days from the crucial midterm elections, 78 days to be exact. Not that I'm counting. Uh, and news out today suggests that uh, Trump's longtime personal lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, could be indicted in the next few days for bank and tax fraud to the tune of tens of millions of dollars unless he flips and decides to cooperate as a witness against Donald Trump with the Robert Mueller investigation. All of this, it's believed, could happen in um, in just days if it if it does happen as we get close to the 60-day soft deadline before the election when, in theory, the Department of Justice is not supposed to be bringing indictments or making announcements that could have an effect on an upcoming election. That's just a policy, though. It's not a law or statute. Uh, it's obviously one that James Comey has proven um, as he proved before the 2016 election that it's, well, you know what, it's somewhat up for interpretation as need be. But uh, if an indictment is going to be brought before the election, it will probably be within the next uh, few days, the next week or so, uh, or it could be brought uh, in the 60 days before the election, but kept sealed until after the election. So maybe we will discuss some of that and Donald Trump's no good, very bad, horrible, horrible current lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, who just seems to keep making things worse and worse for his client, as if they could be any worse than they are already for his client. With more inculpatory commentary on the Sunday news shows over the weekend from uh, Rudy, uh, pretty sure he may be the worst lawyer ever, but Speaking of the upcoming election, uh, boy, whenever we take even one day off, as we did on Friday, all kinds of stuff piles up in that regard. So I will probably spend the next few days trying to catch up with some important stories, including uh, my guest, I hope, on tomorrow's show, just back from Kansas and the crazy Republican primary for governor there that we were talking about quite a bit last week and what we should all be very concerned about regarding the state's new voting machines also used all over the country this November and similar ones, unverifiable touchscreen systems coming here to Los Angeles. And incredibly enough, after this year's midterms, uh, in any event, on Tuesday, voters are heading to the polls for this week's midterm primaries in Alaska and Wyoming. And then next Tuesday, we will have another big primary day as the Primary season finally and mercifully nears its end. Uh, that will be next Tuesday in Arizona and Florida. What could possibly go wrong in either of those states? 
so that's next Tuesday, along with the primary uh, runoffs in um, in Oklahoma. But speaking of things going wrong, some good news and some bad news in that regard uh, with elections today as I try to catch up a bit. Let's start with the good news here out of New Hampshire. Um, In New Hampshire, it was discovered last year by the ACLU that voters are disenfranchised each election due to a statute in the state which requires all absentee voters to undergo a signature match requirement on their ballots, essentially a handwriting test. One of those voters, a woman by the name of Mary Saucedo, Uh, She's 94 years old, or at least she was back in 2016. She first voted for president in 1944. But in 2016, New Hampshire refused to count her vote. So the ACLU filed a lawsuit challenging the statute which had left Mary and hundreds of others without their most fundamental right, according to the ACLU. Mary is legally blind. Due to advanced macular degeneration, she qualifies to vote absentee in New Hampshire, which is only available to voters if they are unable to go to the polls on Election Day due to disability, religious observance or a trip out of town. Now, she often so she has that right, given her disability. She often requires the help of her husband, Gus, who is an 86 year old military veteran to to help cast her vote. They have been married for 51 years. Mary and Gus approach voting like a team, says the ACLU. But in 2016, uh, Gus helped Mary complete her application for a mail-in absentee ballot and assisted her in filling out and signing the ballot and the ballot envelope when it came time to vote. Once the ballot was put into the mailbox, uh, sent to the Manchester clerk's office, the Saucedos didn't think about it again. They thought all was well, as they usually do. They voted as normal and assumed that her vote would count. But a few months after the election results were in, after the presidential election of 2016, Mary and Gus were stunned to get a phone call from the ACLU of New Hampshire. They wanted to let Mary know that her 2016 presidential election, her vote in that election, had been thrown out. She had no idea. For the first time, she learned that there is this signature match scheme, practice, law, statute, whatever, in New Hampshire requiring local election moderators, not handwriting experts, mind you, but just local election officials. They are required to compare voter signatures on the application for an absentee ballot to the signature on the envelope of the ballot itself. And if a moderator believes the signatures don't match, they got to reject it outright. They just throw out the ballot. Now, the problem here is that voters are not notified of this requirement, meaning they don't know uh, they're not aware of the penalties for having penmanship that fluctuates between those two documents, as the ACLU described it uh, last year. More importantly, the statute does not uh, consider voters who are not able to produce two identical signatures, one on the application, one on the ballot itself. Because many of them, like Mary, may have a disability. She's blind. This violates the Americans with Disabilities Act, that's the ADA, which guarantees the rights of citizens with disabilities to full and equal access to voting. At least that's what the ACLU argued. Finally, and this is what uh, bugs the hell out of me, and this doesn't happen only in New Hampshire. This happens in a lot of places. Individuals 
without handwriting analysis expertise, uh, decide if a signature matches or not. If it, In this case, if it matches the application for the absentee ballot in other states where if it matches the signature that the uh, voter originally used when they registered to vote, sometimes years ago, sometimes decades ago. But when uh, a ballot is thrown out, uh, they are not required to notify voters that their ballots have been rejected for that reason in New Hampshire and in other states. In this case, Mary and others were not given the opportunity to correct the problem or appeal the decision to save their vote in time. She would have never known about it had not she been contacted months after the election by the ACLU. She did everything right. Her vote should not have been rejected, particularly due to her uh, her disability. But like many others in New Hampshire and around the country where they have similar practices, her ballot was tossed out. Her vote was tossed out. She was disenfranchised and she never knew it. So, yeah, just another reason why I do not recommend vote by mail unless you cannot be in town or, uh, or, or you can't get to the polls on Election Day for some reason. But here's the good news, at least in this case, at least in, uh, in New Hampshire. A federal judge last week struck down the New Hampshire law that allows poll workers to toss out absentee ballots if they don't believe the signature adequately matches the one used on other voting paperwork, according to New Hampshire Public Radio. In the ruling issued last week by U.S. District Judge Landia McCafferty, uh, she said the current process for rejecting voters to a signature mismatch fails to guarantee basic fairness because it gives moderators, quote, sole, unreviewable discretion to discard absentee ballots. And again, this is not just New Hampshire this happens all over the country where people who are not experts in handwriting decide that, oh, this is fraudulent. I'm throwing it out. And they don't let the voters know. Boy, it, it irritates me. In any event, uh, Judge McCafferty, it irritates Judge McCafferty, too. She wrote, it cannot be emphasized enough that the consequences of a moderator's decision disenfranchisement is irremediable. In other words, there's nothing that can be done once they choose in their own discretion to throw out someone's vote. McCafferty also raised concerns about the lack of, a, of standards, the training and the oversight that are given to poll workers who are tasked with deciding whether to throw out someone's uh, ballot. I think these people can be uh, volunteers, poll workers who, you know, <laughs> are not handwriting experts. The U.S. District Court judge concluded this signature matching process is fundamentally flawed. Not only is the disenfranchised voter given no right to participate in the process, but the voter is not even given notice that her ballot has been rejected due to a signature mismatch. So they could have contacted Mary and said, hey, Mary, we have a, a ballot here that is from someone with your name, from your address, signed by someone who claims to be you. Did you vote? Can you come in? Can you let us know if this is actually your ballot or not? And she could have come in, in theory, to, you know, or done something to cure the problem, but she was not given that, well, I was going to call it that right. It certainly should be a right. 
Uh, Giles Bissonnette, uh, legal director of the ACLU in New Hampshire, said in a statement, we've said all along that people should not be denied their fundamental right to vote because of penmanship. We're glad the court agreed. The ruling also addressed arguments presented by the state that the existing law is necessary to guard against, wait for it, potential voter fraud involving absentee ballots. Now, I should note here that while voter fraud by actual voters as opposed to insider election fraud, voter fraud uh, is very rare. But where it does happen, yeah, it's almost always absentee voting, absentee ballots. Um. And in this case, the judge agreed that the state has a legitimate interest in preventing voter fraud, protecting the public confidence in elections. But her ruling also points out that the state only was able to present two cases of absentee related voter fraud uh, in their argument to the court supporting this law. Two cases, whereas. Uh, The judge notes an estimated 740 absentee voters had been disenfranchised over the past several elections because of the signature mismatch policy. This in a state which has very close elections, by the way. Republican uh, U.S. Senator Kelly Ayotte lost her 2016 election to now Senator Maggie Hassan uh, by barely more than 1,000 votes out of some 700,000 votes cast that year. So, yes, every legitimate vote should count regardless of penmanship. Furthermore, the judge wrote, plaintiffs point out that neither instance of absentee uh, voter fraud that they did point out, those two cases of absentee voter fraud, neither one of them was uncovered through the signature matching process. Uh, The ACLU calls this a huge victory for voting rights. I would agree. The order means that New Hampshire is likely going to have to rethink its training for poll workers. This just weeks before they go to their uh, state primary on September 11. And voters around the country who intend to vote by mail should find out if their states use similar, uh, similar signature matching without notifying voters to give you a chance to cure the problem. You know, if, say, your signature may have changed since you first registered to vote years and years ago. Otherwise, if you can, and if you are allowed to vote on a hand-marked paper ballot at the polls on Election Day, then yes, please try to do so. Check your registration to make sure you're registered, but please try to vote on Election Day at the polls, at least if you're entitled to vote on a hand-marked paper ballot. That is the best way to maximize the chance of your vote actually being tallied as per your intent. So that's today's good voting news. Uh, now on to today's not so good voting news, where we um, where we see what could be a hint of what we may see a lot more of over the next several months. Again, the next 78 days uh, to to uh, to be specific here as the GOP becomes more desperate to pare back their possible losses any way that they can think of in what Democrats believe or at least hope could be a blue wave election. This is all happening, by the way, uh, to your voting rights on this on the state level in a lot of states as the corporate media is very much focused on the Trump cir- uh, circus and not paying attention Uh, to to what voters are going to be dealing with between now and November 6th. Uh, So 
That was good news. Here's the not-so-good news. Civil rights advocates are objecting to a proposal to close about 75% of polling locations in a predominantly black South Georgia county. The, uh, the, the, the Randolph County Elections Board, which is actually just two people right now, since one, uh, one seat on this board is currently vacant, this board is discussing and will vote this Friday on a proposal that would eliminate seven of nine polling locations in this rural county. Seven of nine. That, according to, once again, the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU of Georgia, included in the proposed closure is uh, a middle school where nearly 97 percent of voters are black. They're just going to close that down. At least that's the proposal. ACLU of Georgia uh, attorney Sean Young said there is strong evidence that this was done with intent to make it harder for African-Americans to vote. The ACLU has sent a letter to the elections board demanding that the polling places remain open. They filed an open records request for information about the proposal. According to the latest census figures, Randolph County's population is more than 61 percent. Uh, of uh, is more than 61 percent black. That is double the statewide percentage. The median household income in this county was just over $30,000 in 2016. That's compared to just over $50,000 in the rest of the state. So it's poor. It's rural. It's black. It's poor. And nearly one third of the county's residents live below the poverty line compared to about 16 percent statewide, according to the U.S. Census. Now, the closure of polling places will affect those who lack reliable transportation, according to the ACLU. There is public transit doesn't exist in much of this rural county, which covers some 431 square miles. Twenty two percent of the county's residents have no car. You get what's going on here? People who currently vote at the polling places that would close under this proposal would have to travel an additional 10 miles in order to vote, according to the ACLU. This is not easy without public transportation or without a car, especially on a work day. ACLU of uh, Georgia executive director says that if you don't have a car and you want to vote in person, you have to walk three and a half hours. Of course, this sort of thing uh, prior to the uh, uh, well, prior to 2013, it would have likely been prevented before it could happen at all under the Voting Rights Act. But in 2013, you'll recall the U.S. Supreme Court rolled back voting rights requirements that uh, required many jurisdictions like those in Georgia to receive permission from the federal government before changing ways that people are allowed to vote. They used to have to prove the voting changes were not discriminatory. They no longer have to do that because John Roberts on the Supreme Court told us, oh, we've come a long way when it comes to discrimination. Nothing to worry about anymore. Yeah. And also remember, with this uh, Supreme Court decision, you have to wait now until after the loss has occurred, until after you've been disenfranchised, before you can then sue and then go through the court system and take years to get any sort of relief or even to get these laws taken off the books. So you have to wait until you've been injured first. The ACLU says uh, this is an example of what localities are doing without the the, the uh, preclearance requirement that was by and large struck down by the Supreme Court back in 2013. All nine polling locations 
in the county, in Randolph County, were used during this year's primary and and the, the Republican runoff that followed. So um, AP notes that it's unclear why the locations would suddenly be shut down between now and November, what legitimate reason they would have for shutting down seven of the nine polling locations only now, only after the primaries and and before the uh, November election. Now, mind you, I, I know it's a, a complete coincidence here, but uh, those primaries in Georgia resulted in Stacey Abrams, a progressive African-American woman, becoming the Democratic nominee for governor this year. She'll be running against the state's horrible Republican Secretary of State, Brian Kemp. We've been discussing him in... I want to say recent days, but recent days and weeks and months, frankly, because he is so terrible. Most lately, we've been uh, talking about him in regard to the lawsuit that has been filed in the state of Georgia to force them to move to hand-marked paper ballots for this year's elections. Uh, the lawsuit hopes to extend the state's existence. They have hand-marked paper ballots in uh, in Georgia in their absentee ballot system. And so this uh, this lawsuit is trying to say, yeah, use those for everyone. Print up more paper ballots and give them to people at the polls rather than force them to use the 100 percent unverifiable, easily hacked 16 year old Diebold touchscreen systems that are still shamefully used in polling places across the entire state of Georgia. So Abrams has a good shot. Stacey Abrams, uh, the Democratic nominee, she has a good shot at uh, becoming the state's and, and, by the way, the nation's first female African-American governor this year. So it is not surprising that there is an effort in the state, at least in some places, to make it harder for black voters to be able to cast their vote. Now, over the weekend, uh, voting rights activists in Georgia announced a petition drive in an effort to collect enough signatures of registered voters to try to block the proposal in Randolph County, no matter what the uh, the Board of Elections, the two people who get a vote here, no matter what they decide to do, they're going to be voting on that this Friday. Um, but, you know, they've got to use this time to collect uh, petitions. I think they've got to collect something like 800 signatures in order to block this change. They've got to use that time instead of using the time to register more voters. Uh, you know, and and campaign or whatever it is they may wish to do. So, you know, no matter what happens here, maybe it's a victory for the anti-voting forces, even if the proposal is blocked. Following some of the terrible publicity on all of this in the past few days, Brian Kemp, again, the secretary of state in Georgia, who is running for governor at the same time, he oversees elections operations throughout the states. He issued a statement urging Randolph County's officials to abandon the effort. Well, good for him. Uh, county officials and a consultant that they hired said that the closures were necessary because the sites were not compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. Once again, they're using the ADA to actually disenfranchise people. They said those states, they were not complying with the ADA, and there was no time to fix them before November 6th. So, um, and uh, they said that, oh, well, uh, affected voters can just uh, vote by absentee ballot, which, as I just mentioned, are easier to toss out than regular ballots. 
That said, if you live in Georgia, uh, voting by absentee on a handmarked paper ballot and delivering it to your polling site, if you can, or your county headquarters on Election Day, that is preferred to voting on the state's 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. And can we just talk about the twisted no, logic, the can't. twisted logic is... of saying you have to shut these sites down because they're not currently ADA compliant and we right. couldn't possibly make them ADA right. compliant in time for the November election. But, hey, if you're disabled, good luck getting so to that So nobody site. gets to vote. Exactly. So these aren't compliant, so nobody can vote whatsoever. Uh, that's what the ACLU said. You don't solve problems of accessibility for people with disabilities by reducing access for people without disabilities. Nobody gets to vote. But, of course, that's what Republicans have been trying to. It's the same sort of thinking that Republicans have been trying to use for years with their photo ID voting restrictions, even though there's almost zero voter fraud that actually occurs at the polling place through people pretending to be someone else and showing up at the polls. But if they can find one such instance that it happened anywhere, anytime, ever, they are willing to disenfranchise millions of voters in order to stop that one vote, that one fraudulent vote. Millions of voters who don't have the specific types of ID needed. Uh, so it's a sort of like uh, the same thing here. Uh, you know, well, we're, we can't be ADA compliant, so we're going to shut the entire thing down. Uh, the uh, Kristen Clark, president of the uh, uh, the Lawyers Committee for uh, Civil Rights under law, says these polling place closures are a stark rem- uh, are part of a stark pattern that we are seeing across Georgia, whereby officials are working to make it harder for African Americans and other minorities to vote. The more communities mobilize to turn out the vote, the harsher the voter suppression efforts taken by officials. By the way, uh, one of the uh, efforts taken uh, by the community to make it easier to vote is uh, the one by the New Georgia Project. It was launched several several years ago by the now Democratic gubernatorial nominee, Stacey Abrams, in order to register and mobilize voters, especially voters of color and, and young people. Now, Abrams and Kemp have had a very contentious relationship uh, over the effort by the New Georgia Project to sign up new voters, she has accused Kemp of using illegal tactics to keep tens of thousands of potential voters off the rolls back before the 2016 election. That may be going on now. I don't know. He has accused New Georgia Project of trying to add, yes, fraudulent voters to the rolls. <clears throat> Legal challenges have, of course, been filed by uh, both sides. But here we have Abrams and Kemp in agreement that Randolph County officials should not go through with this plan to eliminate those polling places. Seven out of nine of the precincts in this rural, poor uh, African-American precinct just weeks now before the, uh, frankly, the most important midterm of our lifetime and perhaps of our country's history. Uh, Several groups, including the Georgia Democratic Party, Common Cause, the NAACP, have all called on Kemp, meanwhile, to step down from his position as Secretary of State while he runs for governor. He calls it a conflict of interest for him to be making decisions about election laws and procedures while he's seeking the state's top elected job. Kemp, however, has said, nope, 
I'm staying in office uh, and I'm doing the job until my term ends in January, no matter what. All right, quick break, and we're back with more broadcast, maybe some environmental news, maybe some of your calls. Don't make me play uh, Rudy Giuliani, because I will. 818-985-5735 is our phone number if you'd like to ring in on any of this. Lots more straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Shadow in the city All around people looking half dead Walking on the sidewalk harder than a match Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Desi Doyen, I may need some help on... Um, on this story that I want to try to hit. Otherwise, I okay. uh, would love to hear from uh, folks if they want to jump in. 818-985-5735. Looks like I'm going to have to play Rudy Giuliani. So, yeah, <laughs> Unleash just the Giuliani? I'm just saying. Uh, 818-985-KPFK is our phone number. So, Des, uh, Donald Trump plans this week, according to The Washington Post and others, to unveil a proposal that would empower states to establish emission standards for coal-fired coal power plants Rather than speeding their retirement, this would be a major overhaul of the Obama administration's signature climate policy. Uh, I guess we all knew this was coming, but now we're starting to see actual uh, details on what is coming. The plan, um, which is uh, projected to release the Trump plan, it will release at least 12 times the amount of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere compared with the Obama rule over the next decade. And it comes as scientists have warned that the world will experience increasingly dire Climate effects absent a major cut in carbon emissions. Now, again, I want to get into some of the uh, specifics here in a moment. But I mean, this blistering summer of heat and fire and flooding and related natural disasters continues to devastate the planet. We've been covering it, of course, on the broadcast five days a week, on the Green News Report twice a week. And today, for example, monsoon rains every day. It's something else, Des. Monsoon rains in southern India are crippling the state of Kerala uh, and have, so far, killed hundreds. The worst flooding in nearly a century. We uh, Death tolls right now are 
estimated at more than 200 or more than 350, depending on uh, which news agency you uh, get this from. The flooding has forced more than 800,000 residents from their home. Authorities are trying to rushing to bring uh, drinking water to the most affected areas. But this is very bad and yet another sign of our planet in crisis, which if it is up to the Trump administration, he cannot make he cannot wait to make even worse. Uh, according to these uh, reports on what he plans to do with the um, with the uh, the clean pl- uh, uh, clean power plan right. from the, Barack Obama. Right. The clean power plan. So let's go back a little bit and remind everybody what the clean power plan is. In 2015, Obama's Environmental Protection Agency issued the clean power plan, and that was the central pillar of, of uh, Obama's climate policies and his full agenda. It's supposed to achieve a 32 percent cut in nationwide CO2 emissions from power plants by 2030. That's relative to 2005 levels. That's a 32 percent cut in our emissions that contribute the U.S. contribution to global greenhouse gas emissions that cause dangerous global warming. So the reason why Trump is allowed to rewrite this clean power plan that Obama put out is because the clean power plan was blocked in court. About 20 some odd states sued, including Scott Pruitt, back when he was attorney general of Oklahoma. They sued to stop the clean power plan because they argued that the EPA overstepped its boundaries and didn't go through the right process. Um, so they didn't. They stood to stop it, but they didn't kill it no. in and of itself. They put it. They put it on hold. They put, they put the brakes on a stay, an injunction, while the uh, while the case was was being put, you know processed through right. the through the court system. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, one of Antonin Scalia's last acts as a justice of the Supreme Court before he passed away was to put a stay and to and make sure that that clean power plan was stayed while it went through the courts and was not implemented because sometimes regulations are allowed to be implemented by the courts until they finish going through the process, not this time. This new proposal... By Trump. By Trump, when it... Uh, and we'll, we'll, I guess we'll see it officially uh, in the next day or so. He's he's having a, a, a rally or whatever the hell he does in West Virginia on right. Tuesday. Uh, so we'll get the details there. Um, but it is expected to have... Uh, just make slight cuts, slight, tiny cuts overall when it comes to emissions of pollutants, including carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, uh, and so forth. But it, uh, by contrast, um, d- the Obama rule dwarfs those cuts by a factor of more than 12. Right. This new proposal, according to the Post... Uh, will have big implications, of course, for the aging coal-fired power plants across the country. Um, but by 2030, according to administration officials, this proposal would cut CO2 emissions. And I guess they're proud of this. It's going to cut CO2 emissions uh, by anywhere between 0.7 percent and one and a half percent. That compared to um, this is just to put it into terms that actually make sense. uh, That's the equivalent of taking 2.7 million and 5.3 million cars off the road. Right. Okay. well, that sounds a lot. And I'm sure they're going to say we're taking anywhere from two to five million cars off the road with this rule. However, if you compare it to the Obama Clean Power Plan, that would cut CO2 emissions by 19 percent, which is the equivalent of uh, taking 75 million cars out of circulation. 
and preventing more than 365 million metric tons of CO2 from entering the atmosphere. Yeah, and uh, Trump's uh, version of this to instead of outright rolling it back, which would probably be uh, completely shut down by the courts, that's why he's trying to rewrite it to make it sound like, see, we're just making it a little bit easier. Because he has to do something. They're required to take some action under right. the law, right? Yeah, and so Trump's plan, as as the draft proposal appears to be, as reported, yeah. um, would let states write their own rules instead for these yes. power plant emissions, set their own standards for deciding, well, you know, this is how much we feel like we want to bother with cutting emissions and air pollution, by the way. Or he could also allow them to opt out of setting any regulations whatsoever. So that means that the U.S. commitment that we made in the Paris Climate Agreement to the United Nations that Obama signed, that we all promised to do as a nation, that means that we will not be able to meet those targets. And another part of this, another factor in this, is that the Clean Power Plan was one of a suite of policies that Obama presented to China, to uh, the Chinese president, and said, here, here's our good faith commitment Mm -hmm. to reducing emissions under the United Nations Paris Agreement. Here's what we're going to do. Please now come to the table and negotiate with us and tell us what you're going to do. China was not going to do anything until the United States made that good faith effort. And because of that, because of the Clean Power Plan, China stepped forward and made some pretty serious commitments under the the Paris Climate Agreement. And not just commitments. Actual actions. Oh, yeah, I mean, they're they have doing been it. Putting in uh, solar power all over like crazy. Uh, but yeah, so now it's going to be left. I love that, you know, it's going to be left to the. <laughs> To, to the states. Uh, there's a quote here from Scott Siegel. He represents uh, utilities that run coal-fired power plants. Uh, he said in an email to The Washington Post um, that the Trump administration has sought to empower the states as it curbs the excesses of its predecessor. Okay, that just makes me mad. I know. Ahead. No, I know. This will make it even worse. Uh, the previous administration's efforts to address greenhouse gases, this is a quote, was a complex and unnecessarily burdensome overreach that took much of the responsibility for power systems away from the state regulators who know them best. And that is a flat out lie. Because the Clean Power Plan was tailored to each of the 50 states, to each of the 50 states' unique mix of power sources and natural resources, such as hydropower mm-hmm. or solar or wind or what they already had in place versus how many coal plants so they might was... have to work on. This was basically the uh, the EPA said, here's what we think you, individual state, are able to achieve based on what you have unique to you. Now, here's what we think you can do within this amount of time. What do you think you can do? Why don't you tell us how you think you can meet Let these us standards? Know. Work with us, and then we'll work with you on whether you can, how you're going to get there, what help do you need, what subsidies so do you it was, need? So it was already uh, up to the states. It was already Absolutely. up to state regulators to sort of work with the federal government. And by the way, this this notion that uh, oh, the state regulators know them best. Uh, this is something that they say. When it's incredibly convenient, uh, other times when it's uh, state governments, you know, uh, hey, the state government in, in California, we know what's best for us out here in uh, in California when it comes to emissions and mileage standards. But the uh, the Trump administration has sued California to try to stop us, our state regulators who know uh, the situation best on the ground from having any say over what uh, mileage standards should be for 
uh, for cars and other emissions uh, standards. So it's a it's a moving, a movable standard for these people it, it whenever is, they give a damn about states' rights and local rights and so forth. It is not a standard. It is not a principle. It's basically applicable whenever it, it suits uh, Republicans because it helps whatever agenda for the fossil fuel industry that they are trying to promote. The other part of the Clean, clean Power Plan was that it was also going to have a co-benefit, not just reducing carbon emissions that caused global warming, but yeah. also because it was going to reduce air pollution by helping these coal plants either get on the stick and reduce their pollution, their actual particulate air pollution that causes heart attacks and strokes and asthma and all kinds and lung cancer and, yep. and actually kills people. It was going to help reduce that air pollution, but instead it's not going to at all. The EPA's own uh, data admits in this uh, draft proposal that they're not going to address air pollution and it's more uh, people are going to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just who cares? People die. The important thing is the uh, coal companies, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're making America sick again. We're making coal great again. And now the uh, the coal lobby and the energy lobby, they're going to be left to uh, work it out with state regulators in each and every state. Uh, gosh, I wonder what that what, I wonder what those state regulators are going to do when they're uh, approached by these guys like Scott Siegel. Uh, one of these uh, lobbyists from the industry who go right to these state regulators and say, hey, man, you're going to put us out of business. You're going to shut us down. Don't do it. Oh, by the way, here's a few thousand dollars for your uh, for your campaign coming up. All right. You want to talk about that? 818-985-5735. We'll see if we have time left for anything. Quick break. And we are back with more broadcast right after this. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. All right, I threatened it. I may do it. Uh, we may have to play some Rudy Giuliani for you. Our phone number is 818-985-5735. Let's see if Morris in Long Beach, however, can save you from that fate. Uh, oh, Morris, welcome to the broadcast. How are you, my friend? Uh, good, Brad. I just want you to know that I missed you. Hey, oh. Brad, listen, the word is not Republican. The words are conservatives and libertarians. Conservatives and libertarians are godless people. I'm reading a book now called White Protestant Nation, The Rise of the American Conservative Movement. Listen to this, Brad, real short. There is, on the one side, the God concept. On the other side, cosmic materialism, which banished God from the world. They believe, uh, I'm talking about conservatives and libertarians, they believe that the worst curse of mankind is religious faith. We're dealing with a, a godless people here, Brad. I mean, we need some serious prayer here. And, and I'm going to tell you something. I don't care what these guys do with their voter suppression. They're not stopping the blue wave. And you ought to be talking about Chris Colback, the guy running in Kansas. Is he going to be the one counting the votes, too? 
in his own election. Uh, yes, he is going to be. We talked about Chris Kobach quite a bit over the past week or two. Go download it at bradblog.com, and we are going to be talking about it again on tomorrow's show unless we get derailed by something. But, uh, yeah, we're going to be uh, speaking with Jenny Cohn, I hope, uh, who's just back from Kansas. She's not in Kansas anymore, but we will be talking about her. So you got to tune in five days a week, Mo. Good to hear from you, though. Appreciate it. You too, Brad. Thank Talk you, brother. You there, my All right. Uh, so, you know, everyone I know is talking about this today. Uh, you might want to do so as well. Trump's terrible attorney, Rudy Giuliani, on Sunday's Meet the Press announced the uh, that the truth is not the truth, he said. This during a conversation about how Trump has been stalling and delaying and refusing to speak to special counsel Robert Mueller, despite saying for months and months and months that he would love to speak with special counsel Robert Mueller, but he just they just can't seem to do it for some reason. Um, it, you know, you might one might be led to believe that Trump has been lying this whole time, but I'd hate to call the president of the United States a liar. Here's Giuliani with uh, NBC's Chuck Todd on Sunday. What I have to tell you is, look, I'm not going to be rushed into having him testify so that he gets trapped into perjury. And when you tell me that, you know, he should testify because he's going to tell the truth and he shouldn't worry. Well, that's so silly because it's somebody's version of the truth, not the truth. He didn't have a, a conversation. Truth is about, truth. I, I don't mean to go like. I, no, I it isn't truth. Truth isn't truth. The president of the United States says I didn't. Truth isn't I, truth. Mr. Mayor, do you realize what I. I, I no, I, no, no. This no, is going to become a what, bad don't, 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 do, don't, do, don't do this to me. Don't do uh, truth isn't truth Trump, to me. Donald Trump says I didn't talk about Flynn with Comey. Comey says you did talk about it. So tell me what the truth is. So, yeah, truth isn't truth. Uh, that's not playing well today. Uh, Giuliani uh, tweeted uh, on uh, on Monday that, uh, quote, my statement was not meant as a pontification on moral theology, but one referring to the situation where two people make precisely contradictory statements. The classic he said, she said puzzle. Sometimes further inquiry can reveal the truth. Other times it doesn't. So, you know, why should anybody ever testify about anything? Why should anybody ever give any information? Because somebody might say something different. So who knows? Who knows what the truth is? Now, some people might say, well, maybe the truth is, you know, the guy who contemporaneously walked out of that meeting and documented it and sent it to all uh, a whole bunch of people. But, you know, uh, who knows? Uh, the reaction, of course, has been similar to when uh, Kellyanne Conway, you'll remember, at some point last year said that um, uh, that when they were talking about the uh, the Trump's inauguration being the largest ever, that, in fact, uh, it wasn't that it was not true. It was just alternative facts. Uh, James Comey, for his part, tweeted on Monday, the, or actually on Sunday, saying the last person who should pontificate on truth is Rudy Giuliani. This was uh, seemingly uh, responding to uh, Comey's tweets on uh, on Sunday. Giuliani then uh, responded to say um, the, the last that, that I'm sorry, I've screwed that up, that James Comey was the last person who should pontificate on the truth. That in response to Comey saying in response to Giuliani that truth exists and truth matters. Uh, as to the substance of what they were actually talking about during this uh, conversation on so-called collusion with Russia and Chuck Todd. The word is conspiracy. There's no such crime as collusion. Anyway, 
Giuliani, the worst lawyer ever, was arguing there was absolutely no evidence of any sort of collusion or conspiracy between the Trump campaign uh, and and Russia before the 2016 election. And then Giuliani admitted out loud as if he did not understand that he was likely admitting the Trump campaign was committing a crime here that the uh, 2016 Trump Tower meeting was, quote, originally for the purpose of getting information about Hillary Clinton from the uh, same interview with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press Sunday. I mean, let's talk with collusion. I mean, the Trump Tower meeting itself is at least uh, evidence of you better investigate. It's a, it's a, it's a, how is it not? Well, because the meeting was uh, originally for the purpose of getting information about about Clinton. The meeting turned into a meeting. Which in itself, it's attempted collusion. I understand. No, I, you not. just said it. it. meeting was intended to get dirt on Hillary Clinton from a Kremlin no, lawyer. No, no. That was uh, the intention uh, of the meeting. You just said it. That was the original intention of the meeting. It turned out to be a meeting about another subject, and it was not pursued at all. And, of course, any meeting uh, with regard to getting information on your opponent is something any candidate's uh, staff would take. If someone said, I have information about your opponent, you would take that meeting. If it happens to be from the Russian with government, Russian... she didn't represent the Russian government. She's a private citizen. I don't even know if they knew she was Russian at the time. OK, uh, and I, all I have time to do uh, on that uh, to respond there that he's admitting that, yes, they met in order to get information on Hillary from these Russians. Uh, this is something that uh, Trump has recently uh, said that that's what the purpose of the meeting was for, that after claiming that it had something to do with Russian adoption. But, of course, claiming that they didn't know she was Russian is absurd. It's ridiculous that I have even have to underscore this, but I guess I do they, of course, knew that she represented the Russian government. Now, you can say that, oh, that, that's perfectly fine. They can reach out to whoever they want. There is a law against receiving help on a campaign from a foreign government. And you might say, well, they didn't know what they were doing. You can make any excuse you want, and that's fine. And you can argue you don't care. You can argue it's a dumb law. But you can't argue that they did not know that she was Russian. If you look at uh, and that you represented the Russian government, at least if you believe the email from Donald Trump Jr. and the people organizing that meeting at Trump Tower, as released these emails by Donald Trump Jr. himself on June 3, 2016, the invitation sent to John Don Jr. said, quote, the crown prosecutor of Russia offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia and would be very f useful to your father. This is obviously very high level and sensitive information, but is part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. In a follow up email, the same guy sent to Don Jr. four days later on June 7th said, Don, hope all is well. Emin asked that I schedule a meeting with you and the Russian government attorney is flying over from Moscow for this on Thursday. So say what you will, whether you think this amounts to criminal conspiracy by unlawfully accepting help from a foreign nation in an American election which is theoretically a violation of the law. Not theoretically, it actually is a violation of the law. But so what the hell is Giuliani talking about when he says they didn't know that she represented the government? 
their argument seems to be, well, we did know it was to receive dirt from the Russian government, though we didn't know it was from the Russian government, but it ended up being about something else, so we're off the hook. That is not how criminal conspiracies work. If I agree to meet with you to rob a bank and we discuss robbing the bank and so forth, or I ask to meet you uh, with a plan that you murder someone, uh, you know, or the and the robbery ends up uh, not coming off, not it gets stopped, or the murder doesn't happen. It is still criminal conspiracy to commit a crime. As someone I saw noted on Twitter today, as part of all of this, uh, they said men go to jail because they meet with what they expect to be a 14-year-old girl, but who turns out to be a 40-year-old undercover cop. So, uh, yeah, I guess Rudy Giuliani is a lawyer. He's just a lousy one. Uh, Shoot. And I know uh, people are calling in. Sorry, guys, I can't get to you right now because I ran late because I wanted to drive you crazy with that uh, Donald Trump stuff. But if it makes you feel any better, I didn't get to any Donald Trump tweets about uh, who did he call a rat? Don McGahn. Uh, he's not going to he's not going to be a rat. His own White House counsel. He's not a rat like John Dean in uh, Nixon's White House. Well, we'll play John Dean's uh, response maybe at another time because John Dean is still alive. Uh, but I barely am. So I got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, uh, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Sorry I couldn't get to all the callers after all. Um, if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download them anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can uh, find and follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog, where I hope you'll uh, share uh, all of our work and uh, respond if you have any thoughts. Always great to hear from you there. You can also drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And I think that's it. We will be back tomorrow for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast with the delightful Desi Doyen. My thanks to her, our producer, and to our board operator today, D'Angelo Jones. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.